Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. It's been called the first internet. In the 19th century, the telegraph spun a worldwide web of cables and poles carrying electric signals with unprecedented speed. In order to connect the entire American continent, however, the telegraph had to cross Western territory, which brought a host of challenges, conflicts, and uncertainties. What happened when the telegraph crossed the Mississippi River? What natural obstacles had to be overcome? What role did the telegraph play in the displacement of native tribes? James Schwach answers these questions in Wired into Nature, The Telegraph and the North American Frontier, published last year by University of Illinois Press. I spoke with him about the formative years of the first invention to make long-distance communication instantaneous. I'm joined now by James Schwach, author of Wired into Nature. James, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nathan, and hello, everyone. You write that previous work on the history of the telegraph has focused mostly on its development on the East Coast and in the American Midland, but has not looked much at its use and its development west of the Mississippi River. Why do you think that is? I think that happened for a number of reasons. First and foremost, there's a lot of terrific work that's been published and continues to be published about the telegraph and what I have called uh, East of the Mississippi. Um, and that includes uh, work about politics, uh, invention, uh, manufacturing, regulation, uh, finance, journalism. And a lot of that does take place uh, in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that um, it's just that there was more attention to that, to that part of the story and less attention to the part of the story that takes place west of the Mississippi is because the story in Western United States and Western North America, as I talk about in the book, tends to be a story largely about other issues, stories about um, about environment and climate, Native Americans, um, borderlands, and so on and so forth. In your own work, uh, at least your books and uh, some of your journal articles have focused on 20th century global media technologies and, and their cultural impact. Uh, what made you decide to look at the 19th century and to fill in what you saw as this missing piece of uh, westward expansion and the role of the telegraph in that? Well, Nathan, the fact of the matter is I got lucky. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I was preparing to teach a new course. I I teach at Northwestern, a new part of the course. I had decided I was going to do a little bit more work on the relationship between uh, the military and the development of electronic communication networks for the United States, because one of the areas I work on is media history. And as I was getting ready for that course and prepping materials, I knew about some about the Civil War and the use of the telegraph there. And it it literally occurred to me, I wonder if there was anything at all having to do with the telegraph and the latter half of the 19th century 
uh, Indian wars and campaigns against uh, Native Americans and so on and so forth. And after a few hours of looking, I realized there was a lot of material and I had prepared a bunch of PowerPoint slides for the class. And I was thinking, oh, I could maybe even write a journal article about this. So I spent about three more weeks doing work and I realized, oh, I could do a whole book on this. And there had not been, there had been bits and pieces and things done here and there, but there had not been a full length book that looked at this question of the telegraph and uh, in Western North America. So, so I was very lucky, not only did it come from an unexpected place, getting ready to, uh, uh, to do some teaching, but um, the story, the, the outline of the story came together pretty quickly for me, and then it was a matter of doing the research. Your book calls attention to the natural uh, features of the land and the challenges that the landscape presented to those who are developing the telegraph. Uh, can you describe some of the biggest environmental or geological or landscape-related challenges that those who were looking to expand the telegraph westward faced? What did they face on the west side of the Mississippi River that they hadn't encountered on the east side? Sure, sure. First of all, trees or the lack of trees west of the Mississippi compared to east of the Mississippi. And that may, on the one hand, that may seem unusual, but this is wires attached to poles, poles that are made out of trees, and there's a relative abundance of trees, particularly trees you can use for telegraph and later telephone poles, uh, east of the Mississippi than there is west of the Mississippi. So you have the trees east of the Mississippi. Also in the eastern United States, you have a, a transportation system at that time, and now we're talking about the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, a transportation network that is much more suited to be able to move trees around. And that's rivers, the Great Lakes, so on and so forth. When you get west of the Mississippi, there's far fewer rivers. Some of the rivers are either they're flooded out or they're hardly running at all, uh, like the Platte River. So there's just two things right there, the, the trees or the lack of trees, the waterways or the lack of waterways. Uh, and those are two big climatological or environmental uh, conditions that really distinguish eastern United States and western United States. And then a, you also, which I could talk a little bit more about if you like, you also have um, significant challenges with things like the Rocky Mountains or the desert southwest and so on and so forth. But I, I actually would start with trees and rivers, uh, of all things, because the telegraph proceeds, comes first before the railroad. Once you have the railroad built and expanding by the 1880s, it's a lot easier to move telegraph equipment around. But at the beginning, it's the trees and the rivers. And I was struck in your description of just how vulnerable in these early years the technology was, the infrastructure was. I mean, poles and cables in the middle of a prairie with the high winds and uh, sometimes attacks by native tribes. Um, yes. It's It just seems like uh, such a fragile system on which to base nationally important and uh, nationally reaching communications. Yeah, I think it was a fragile system. I think that Lots of different things, and I talk about some of these things, uh, take place or happen to show how fragile it is. Um, it was very common for um, 
uh, westward trail travelers and the like to cut down a telegraph pole for firewood because there's no wood around. <laughs> you know, it's much more common than one than one would think. Um, uh, before the slaughter of the bison, a bison herd could easily topple several miles of uh, uh, of telegraph poles. But there also is, I think, something to this in that it's not unusual when a new network or a new network communication technology emerges. It's not all that unusual for it to be fragile at the start. Um, it, we forget quickly things like um, early email systems, which had really no security or no privacy. We forget quickly how easy or how common it was for something like a uh, a cell phone signal to, to drop out or so on and so forth. These things get these things are um, endemic to new networks, but at the same time, they're not remembered for a long period of time as the network becomes more and more robust and redundant. But as, again, as I talk about in that book, this is all kind of a learning process. And I think it's particularly evident with the telegraph because that's the first electric communication network. It's a, you know, Nothing really like it before in terms of electronic communication. And so the telegraph, maybe we should step back and say the telegraph is a system in which electrical signals are sent along a wire and the combinations of dots and dashes signify letters which form words and are rendered at a, at a station and turned into comprehensible language. Um, you write a lot about the signal flow and managing the signal flow. Um, with apologies for the elementary question, in its early years, was the telegraph essentially one wire with one signal, or was it a bundle that could manage simultaneous messages going back and forth? Well, that's a terrific question. And uh, the answer is yes. That Originally, it was one signal at a time on the wire in one direction. And I'm going to kind of quickly add the one very interesting, or one of the interesting things now about the telegraph is it actually no longer exists. As far as I'm aware, no one uses it in the, anywhere in the world, uses a telegraph system for electronic communication anymore. And on that point, could I note that every other significant technological development has remained and been absorbed into our communication uh, ecosystem, the telephone, the radio, television, and so on. Uh, but the telegraph is the only one that is um, obsolete. Completely gone. And no longer in use uh, anywhere in the world. And it's been superseded uh, by all of the other that you've mentioned and all of the other electronic communication network methods. But to get back to this question of the original, original uh, signal flow issue, yes, it's one signal at a time in one direction, although very, very quickly it, things like it becomes evident that you can very quickly respond in the other direction with one signal at one time, and then very quickly the ability to network or relay that signal, which originally is done, if you, we can get to this a little bit later too, done if you can imagine by hand, so to speak, someone is listening to the signal and then sending the same signal on by um, uh, using and manip manipulating the telegraph key because that that was the substitute for uh, an amplifier, uh, if you will. By the 1860s, probably 1870s, the ability to send more than one signal on a wire at, the t at a time is being developed. Thomas Edison is one of uh, several 
inventors who uh, develop technology for what's often is called multiplex signaling. But that idea that um, one signal at a time and the inability to send more than one signal at a time over the wire of the early days uh, raises all sorts of questions also about what we would probably now call something like limited bandwidth. There wasn't a lot of it. And you describe in the book these stations where messages were received, or as you say, amplified, they'd have to be actually sort of resent and and yeah. pushed down the line. Uh, you describe some of these stations and some of these operators. I, I guess sometimes these stations were embedded in towns and settlements, other times apparently in the middle of nowhere. What what kind of place or what were they like uh, as these as these stations emerged uh, on the frontier? Eventually, it will become very commonplace to have the telegraph station and the railroad station be one and the same. And you start to see that in a big way by, I'd say, the middle of the 1870s, certainly in the 1880s. Before you've got significant development of the, ra- of the railroad in the West, these might, these telegraph stations might be at the same place as a stagecoach stop because some of the early telegraph lines did at least for some of their length, run along um, one of the overland trails. Uh, you would have a telegraph station in um, towns or communities, and some cities were quite important as telegraph relay sites. Salt Lake City would be an example, uh, would be an example there. But the other thing I think that a telegraph station could be, and I kind of picked this up in some of the document reading I was doing, and so on and so forth. A telegraph station could be somewhat like a post office or a general store. In fact, it might be at one of those places. It could be a place where people would congregate and where people would see each other, excuse me, and meet each other. And I think this um, social and business aspect of the telegraph station as a place for people to meet and see each other is another interesting and important aspect of the early telegraph. With the other technologies I listed a moment ago, radio, TV, and the internet, I believe it's true, um, you can correct me or or back me up, that uh, at the genesis of each one, there's a a question about who controls it, the military or the commercial sector. A lot of times these technologies are developed by the military and then commercialized later. I believe that's true, but you write that that's certainly true of the telegraph back in the in its early years in the in the 19th century. Um, there's there's some tension and there's some struggle between is the military or our commercial interests going to control this new yes. technology? Can you talk about some of those big tension points, uh, how that conflict played out and um, and how it eventually got resolved? Sure, I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, it, I think it's an ongoing tension and Of course, particularly in the United States, we have private enterprise and we have a a, a commercial systems and so on and so forth, for-profit revenue. And when I say, which I do, I think in that book, say there's a significant military influence and presence and what's going on in all of this, that doesn't mean there's no... uh, you know, uh, private enterprise and business and commerce and so on and so forth. The tension comes in the interplay between private enterprise and I would say the the federal government, the federal government most most obviously 
through the military. But, but not only through the military, but that's the place where I think it's most obvious, and particularly with the telegraph. And one of the things I found in doing this book, and one of the things that I hope comes across um, as, a, a, as something to take away from the book for readers, is that some of the questions that we have going on right now related to um, the government's right or the government's lack of a right to uh, eavesdrop on messages or to um, look at the way signal flow, what often is called traffic, who's sending messages to whom, so on and so forth, and the right to privacy and all of these, these kinds of things. These things are ambiguous from the start. This never really was settled for the telegraph. This never really <laughs> was settled all that clearly for uh, the telephone and other forms of communication. We know it's not completely settled for things like the Internet and uh, for social media and, and so on and so forth. So the idea that this is an ongoing conversation, a conversation with some tensions in the United States regarding electronic communication networks, privacy, commercial enterprise, government, military. This seems to be a condition that goes all the way back to the emergence of electronic communication networks in the United States, which is interesting to think about. And it means what's happening now is in part related to a longer dialogue that's been going on for quite some time. Yeah, so right to this day, should Facebook be regulated? Some of those questions about the Internet, um, an unbroken line back to, back to these questions you've explored. Right, and it's an unbroken line where you see lots of, you don't see clear-cut resolutions. You see contingent uh, decisions or you see practices change over time. There seems to be a lot of ambiguity. One of the big questions that comes up with the Telegraph is, um, what's the relationship of privately owned networks like Western Union, for example, uh, to the federal government and the military during times of war? And what is a time of war anyway? There were clearly generals in the, uh, in the United States in the latter 19th century who clearly argued a state of war existed uh, in what sometimes was called Indian country or with certain tribes, so on and so forth. And so they would argue, and they did argue, that means we, we need a certain kind of uh, a power or ability or things that we can do with this electronic communication network, which we know is largely privately owned, uh, so on and so forth. So these questions, again, it, they have not gone away. We live with them today, and I think you're right that uh, um, things like the face, should Facebook be regulated, that's one of the more uh, recent ones, or... Um, uh, FBI versus Apple, if you remember that from a few years ago, um, should uh, equipment manufacturers be required to provide access to data on the devices that they manufacture and, and, and sell to customers? Um, lots of interesting things that uh, are going uh, that we work with every day and live with every day uh, have, have, in one way or another, been going on for quite some time. You talk about the military significance, the strategic significance. Um, to military interests that was certainly true in the Civil War. And it was, was it Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War under Lincoln, who sort of consolidated control 
over uh, telegraph traffic and and signal flow. And I was really struck that you write that he sealed off the president himself from his sort of telegraph headquarters inside the White House. Uh, Why did he do that, and how did he gather so much power over this technology? Great questions. And it's I, it's stunning to think about that. Yes, it's it's true that Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln presidency did not have a telegraph station or a telegraph operator literally in the White House. Lincoln, Lincoln, who and a number of people have written good books about uh, uh, Lincoln and the telegraph and Lincoln apparently sent over a thousand telegrams during his time as president. He almost always would walk over to the war office to do this, and he's doing this at the war office in front of other people. I mean, he's not doing this in complete private. Um, he is doing this with the supervision of uh, um, uh, military officers. Um, it's kind of astonishing to think about this now in this day and age. Uh, the president of the United States being under this kind of what I would call supervision, for uh, lack of a better term. But that is what that is what went on. Uh, Stanton, I don't know a tremendous amount about Stanton. Uh, there's lots of good books and and good writing about uh, good research about uh, about Stanton. But he clearly saw an opportunity to do this. I think. There were things going on in Washington, D.C. in the very early days of the Civil War before he arrives that clearly, and I talk about some of them in this book, clearly indicate there were serious, serious security risks and other things going on uh, with the telegraph. So there is a justification in the sense of needing a sense of control and bringing a sense of security to the telegraph. But at the same time, he really took it a long, long, long ways and did uh, exercise a tremendous amount of control over the telegraph during the uh, during the Civil War period. There's no doubt about that. So that situated a good amount of control in the White House, or at least under the executive branch. Um, and then you trace that to the point where Theodore Roosevelt consolidates uh, I guess, signal flow control even further in the early 20th century. And you trace the history of the White House Situation Room to Theodore Roosevelt's uh, efforts uh, during his administration. Can you explain that connection? Sure. And I actually think even earlier than Theodore Roosevelt. I The first time you get a telegraph station directly in the White House um, is after the Civil War. And then, uh, in particular, in 1877, when Rutherford Hayes is president of the United States, and you have a series of nationwide railroad strikes. And those strikes were monitored by um, military people, particularly by the military people known as the Signal Service. And those are the people who are doing the daily gathering of weather data from across the United States. They're reporting also on a daily basis throughout the day to the White House on what's going on in all sorts of different cities in terms of uh, strikes, in terms of organization, so on and so forth. They're dressing in plain clothes and we would now say infiltrating uh, union meetings. And it is the first major political electronic surveillance by telegraph or by electronic communication 
in the United States, done very much over the very same network that's being used to gather daily weather information about what's going on with the weather all over the United States. Um, it's the same network and the same people. And there's a terrific historian of weather, James Fleming at uh, Colby College, who has pointed out that when it comes to surveillance, there's not a tremendous amount of difference in electronic surveillance between surveillance of the weather and surveillance of political movements. So that, so to try to make a distinction becomes a bit artificial, particularly when you're looking at the electronic infrastructure that's enabling all of that. So as you go on from Hayes, you get more and more um, entrenchment or establishment of electronic communications networks and a measure of control in the White House. Uh, actually, I probably, to me, it's the Spanish-American War and President McKinley, where all sorts of things really come together. And as others have argued, that may be the first major wartime conflict where literally out of the White House, the president really is using electronic communications uh, in rapid response to um, to wartime conditions and to what's going on in that war. But all of this does, and then Theodore Roosevelt, as you've mentioned, is the one who kind of brings this all together. And what Roosevelt does is kind of actually gets the military out. And so you no longer have literally army personnel doing all of this in the White House. It becomes more of an executive branch function separated from the military. But a lot of people think, and quite rightfully so, when they think of the Situation Room, they think of John Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on and so forth. That's a really important moment in American history for understanding the idea of the White House Situation Room. But if you look back at the idea of the White House becoming more and more centrally involved in um, being able to control and utilize electronic communication networks, I think that all goes all the way back to the Telegraph and, and Rutherford Hayes in particular. Going back to the mid-19th century, the emergence of the Telegraph and its development and extension westward uh, made it a very concrete symbol of uh, westward expansion and displacement of native tribes, and so it made Telegraph lines a, a flashpoint of, of conflict. Um, between uh, settlers and those whom they were displacing. Um, let me ask you about the incident at Cottonwood Canyon in the Nebraska Territory, which you describe. Uh, it happened in January 1865. Uh, give us a sense of the scope of, uh, of what happened there and how the telegraph facilitated uh, this, this attack. Sure. The, um, I think this story relates directly back to um, what had happened in Colorado in late 1864 and the Sand Creek Massacre, where uh, the hundreds of natives were were slaughtered uh, by uh, uh, army troops, including militia troops from Colorado Territory. And the reason I think it relates back to that is a number of people in there in, in the research that I consulted and looked at, and I got to read a lot of terrific, wonderful books and articles in writing this book. Um, suggested that there is clear connections, if you will, in terms of a Native American response, particularly of the Plains, Great Plains tribes, to the uh, massacre and the atrocities of Sand Creek, are the various attacks that start to happen 
throughout the Great Plains area, particularly on telegraph stations in very early 1865. Because in this, oh, I should say this gets back to this idea of the telegraph station as this kind of social center. It could include Native Americans um, who might be present. It's not a mystery as to what the telegraph does and how it sends messages from one party to another party. People would gossip about what was or what was not sent in the telegraph. And there's very good reason to believe the Native Americans really did understand in the latter, latter part of 1864 that when you get more and more and more messages being sent from Denver and the governor of Colorado Territory to places like Fort Leavenworth and other major forts in the area that these messages probably have a military component and is probably a military component directed against Native Americans. So attacking the telegraph station is attacking a really significant point of communication for the coordination of army troops against Native Americans. Then what you also have, however, and this I think is uh, really exemplified by the incident you're asking about, is the telegraph can also become, this is for the army, a way of coordinating a, a, what I would call a, um, a, a wide-ranging attack. And in fact, what happens in January of 1865, uh, late in January of 1865, is uh, the United States Army over a range of about, stretch of about 300 miles, wires every telegraph station in this area that includes Cottonwood, uh, Cottonwood Canyon to, uh, at the same time, to all white fires. They've got the wind blowing at their back from the northwest, and the fire did push through the prairie to the south. It burnt a huge area. I think it's probably one of the largest, it's grassland fire, one of the largest fires in the history of North America. And it was intentionally designed to burn out the, um, uh, the landscape and the grasslands and make it virtually impossible for Plains people to live off that land um, for the whole time that it's burnt out. So it's a, it's a form of scorched, scorched earth warfare coordinated by the telegraph that is much larger than the um, examples of scorched earth warfare you saw in the eastern United States during, um, uh, during the Civil War. Was it designed to actually kill inhabitants or was it designed to push them out and destroy any hope that they could make use of that land? I think much more the latter, although I can't imagine it would have been a problem if people were also killed by this. But it was much more the latter to drive people away and make the land unusable by driving away animals and by you know, destroying um, uh, plant life and so on um, and so on and so forth. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt, a successful attempt to um, uh, destroy a, a landscape and an ecosystem that uh, plains people uh, and the indigenous people of the area um, lived on and uh, gathered their food from and, and so on and so forth. Historical narratives of uh, conflict and displacement 
uh, and attacks on Native tribes um, often talk a lot about the imbalance of firepower um, that westward, those moving westward had over Native tribes. It strikes me as less explored, uh, this technological advantage and the technological coordination that, uh, in this case, uh, the U.S. military enjoyed. Although at the same time, you strike a note of caution. You you warn against the problem of primitivizing others. That's a, a quote from your book. Um, explain that. What? How does that temper our understanding of this? Well, first of all, Nathan, I agree with you that um, there has been a lot of work, and it's interesting work, on um, literally on weapons, what I would call firearms and so on and so forth. And not always so much, although I think that work is growing on some of these other um, areas. But um, one of the things I I came to as I was uh, researching this book, and really I believe strongly, and this gets to the problem of primitivizing others, I cannot imagine in any ways that Native Americans were um, um, technologically naive when it came to understanding the telegraph. Uh, that does not necessarily mean they understood Morse code in that they could, although some may well have, in that they could hear a Morse code signal and know what it said, but they understood full well the conditions of communication and what and how the telegraph was used for communication. I, there's not, you can't find any evidence that uh, suggests that um, you know, messages that were written on pieces of paper were then secured or burned at the end of the day. And we know that Native Americans did raid telegraph offices and ride away with uh, written messages, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so to somehow think, and, you, and a lot of the uh, accounts of the time, a lot of the accounts written in the 19th century and so on and so forth, offer this, I find, insulting and demeaning claim of Native Americans that who claimed they were always frightened by the telegraph or saw it as a great spirit and all of this, or, you know, uh, it could do harm and all of this other kind of stuff. And they were mystified by it. I think that's primitivizing people. And in this case, Native Americans. Native Americans fully understood firearms, as I say in the book, everything from firearms to frying pans. And they visited cities in the eastern United States. And so how could it be that this one thing and this only one thing, the telegram remains, the telegraph, pardon me, remains a great mystery to them? I don't think it was a mystery to them. And I think they understood full well how it could be used as a a significant component of, um, of waging war against them and surveillance. Later on, there's lots of interesting stories and I think troubling stories about how as um, the telegraph becomes more and more institutionalized at places like uh, Native American reservations and so on and so forth, um, anyone leaving the reservation, this would be reported by telegraph. uh, So the telegraph becomes a tool of surveillance for Native Americans, uh, uh, Native Americans as well. I think your book effectively establishes that Native tribes had a savvy understanding, as you describe, of how the technology worked and, and what was at stake. Uh, one detail that just struck me, and uh, I kind of chuckled at it, was that one tactic of uh, Apache tribes in the American Southwest that you describe was to break a telegraph line but conceal the fact that it was broken uh, by, I guess, tying the broken parts to branches. So you would see a wire going in in a tree, through a tree, in one end and out the other, and there's no visible sign that, that it was broken. Um, and, and so that, that, uh, that was strategic. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting tactic. And um, I don't think it's all that uh, unusual to see. We could probably find examples of these kind of things continuing um, uh, into 20th century warfare. And then at the same time, the other thing that is to me is really interesting about that tactic is by that time, you have railroads everywhere and you have telegraph wire being manufactured in such abundance, you really didn't need to repair that old wire. You had plenty of wire at the fort or the garrison brought in by the railroad that you could just go string new wire. So the abundance of manufacture and the uh, easy availability of wire by the 1880s, 1890s means that that technique no longer has or the value of that technique as a way of Native American resistance is diminishing. It is diminishing in the face of the abundance of manufacture and the abundance of uh, distribution of, of telegraph infrastructure. I believe it was after the telegraph reached the West Coast that you say at that point um, interests turned their sights northward uh, up toward Alaska, and there was a Western Union telegraph expedition I believe you say it was called the Telegraph Expedition to Russian America, which was Alaska. And there were railroads that were involved in this. Uh, The military uh, had an interest in this, and I believe sent participants in this. It was led by Robert Kennicott. And and there was a connection to where you work uh, at Northwestern University. Um, You described this arduous expedition and all its ups and downs. Um, I won't ask you to rehash the details, but uh, in summary, what was the purpose of this expedition, and and was that purpose realized? The purpose is, in some ways, the purpose remains a bit of a mystery to this day. Some have wondered whether this was indeed part of an ongoing attempt or process to basically bring Alaska into American occupancy, if you will. It wasn't the first time that there had been discussions or queries or uh, partial negotiations between Russia and the United States over transferring the, uh, what I'll call the occupancy of Alaska from Russia to the United States. So that that interest is there and it's been there for 10 or more, uh, 10 or more years. There also, however, probably above and beyond that, at the time that ex- expedition was running, about September, October of 1865 to about September, October of 1867. For a good part of that time, Nathan, we did not, the world did not have an undersea cable connecting North America with Europe running under the Atlantic Ocean. This had been attempted on several occasions. Sometimes those cables would work, but only for a few weeks. So probably even a bigger goal or question than this should the United States occupy Alaska and should the Russians retreat, was this idea of being able to connect North America with Europe and Asia by telegraph. And so the idea was if you could run that line under the Bering Strait, that's a pretty short gap 
well, you've got to go underwater. But in order to do that, you've got to build landline, so to speak, all the way up to either side of the Bering Strait in uh, Russian Alaska at that time and in Siberia. So I think the biggest issue of it all is how can you connect the world by telegraph and by undersea cable? What happens is that the Atlantic cable is successfully laid and continues to run successfully and successfully and successfully starting around September of 1866. As a result of that, as well as all sorts of other things I talk about in that book, that Alaska-Russia connection is never built for an undersea cable and for connecting the two continents. But the United States does get Alaska in part of this, and that's part of how we get Alaska territory, and all sorts of other things happen as well. But to me, it's both of these things, but the biggest thing of all is this question of how do you wire up the entire world and connect the continents by telegraph? And that's what was going on with that Alaska project. And explain the connection to Northwestern, since that's where you're speaking uh, with oh, us from. Oh, sure. As it turns out, well, that was another way in which I got lucky in some ways, because some of the documents in the archival collections and diaries and letters that I came to realize I really need to look at were literally right here in the archives of my own library. But Robert Kennicott was, Robert Kennicott was a Chicago area person, a Chicago area family. The Kennicott family came to Chicago, the Chicago area, in the 1830s from New Orleans to be um, basically be horticulturalists. And were, they were one of the first families to supply seeds and trees and so on and so forth in this area. The family still runs one of the largest wholesale florist businesses um, in the Chicago area. Um, but Robert is the son of, the, of John Kennecott, who originally comes from, with his family from New Orleans. And Robert is a, is, 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 he's basically would call it now homeschooled, but uh, is from the start, from since, since a young boy, uh, an outdoors kind of uh, a bird, natural history person, so on and so forth. And he actually starts the Science Museum at Northwestern, what we now would call the Science Museum or the Science Library. Um, so he begins to collect uh, whatever, animals, plants, and so on and so forth for the Northwestern University Library. He leaves that job pretty quickly and gets involved in the Smithsonian. And he works at the Smithsonian for a while. He starts the Chicago Academy of Sciences, uh, which is still here. Um, so he's a very important um, natural historian in the Midwest who also has things to do with the very earliest days of, of, of Northwestern University. He dies young. Uh, uh, his family apparently had um, genetic tendencies toward um, heart disease, and so he dies young in Alaska. So you close your book by tracing the legacy through the 20th century and beyond of these efforts to expand the telegraph and the conflict that resulted with native tribes. Um, you note kind of the irony that after having conflict with uh, Native Americans in the 19th century, the U.S. military during World War II then reached out to Navajo tribes uh, as so-called code talkers to be assets uh, when it came to communication uh, during the war. And then you trace that right up to the present day where you note the tremendous disparity in the quality of Internet broadband access when it comes to Native American 
uh, reservations. And so just all the ironies that come from this story. Um, I'll ask a I'll ask a large question, which is, I mean, you're grappling with this issue of the legacy of the frontier, the legacy of westward expansion, yeah. which, which historically has so often been told and internalized uh, by American, uh, by at least white America, as this triumphalistic uh, manifest destiny march across the continent and and sealing from coast to coast with the, with the telegraph line was was sort of the symbol of this triumph. Um, as you told the story. Is it difficult? Is it desirable to to challenge that basic orientation toward westward expansion, uh, not as a triumph but but as a tragedy? Since a, after all, we're talking about the oppression, the displacement, the near obliteration of so many peoples and cultures uh, that that had lived here. I'll the great question. I'll start with the easy way out and say it's certainly a transformation. Um, and, but at the same time, I would lean more toward tragedy than I would triumph. And the reason I think I would lean more toward tragedy than triumph is because the, the thinking of Native Americans, at least I, I strongly believe, the degree and depth and profundity and almost never-endingness of surveillance and oppression and conflict and so on and so forth didn't it did not have to be, and it does not have to be today, now. Uh, one of the things I've thought about since completing this book is you look at um, things like Standing Rock, and you look at all of the oil pipelines that are being built across the Great Plains area and the Canada, the middle of the country, so on and so forth. Whenever you build a pipeline now, or a, a railroad line or whatever, when it's absolutely routine to pull or install a tremendous amount of fiber optic and cable and so on and so forth that has a huge amount of bandwidth, just a gigantic amount of bandwidth. Yet little seems to be done to provide access to that bandwidth, which is running right through some of these most underserved Native American, in fact, other populations as well, uh, most underserved when it comes to internet and other kinds of broadband access. But these companies seem to do very little to open up that broadband and that fiber and that cable uh, on their own pipelines uh, to the people living nearby, to the uh, Native American uh, reservation areas and other people. And it doesn't have to be that way. It, it, it doesn't. You can imagine a world where internet access is being provided really pretty easily. It's like building the interstate and you don't build the off-ramps and on-ramps, you know, next to a bunch of towns and cities. And we know what often is the case for those towns and cities. They struggle without access to the big internet highway. And in some ways, it's the same thing going on here. Um, it's curious to think about, and it's interesting to think about this question of uh, tragedy and triumph and, uh, and transformation. Um, but certainly on the internet and broadband access side, uh, it, it didn't have to be that way then, and it doesn't have to be the way it is now. Th things could be done differently to create lots more uh, access at very low cost to lots of people who are, uh, who are underserved, including uh, uh, Native Americans. Well, James Schwach, the book is Wired into Nature. It's a fascinating look at the logistics of the telegraph, even at a mundane level of how it actually worked. 
And then it inevitably reaches to these larger questions about the uh, mental concept and legacy of the frontier uh, in, uh, in American life and in American history. Um, and this book should be an asset uh, for further scholarship on both fronts. So, James, thanks for your time today. We've, it's been uh, enjoyable talking with you. Nathan, thank you very much, and, and best wishes to you and everyone. James Schwach is the author of Wired into Nature, The Telegraph and the North American Frontier, published by University of Illinois Press. Schwach is a professor of communication studies at Northwestern University. He's also the author of The American Radio Industry and its Latin American Activities, 1900 to 1939, and Global TV, New Media and the Cold War, 1946 to 1969. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.